Section 32 of India, Persia, Mesopotamia, and Palestine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Stewart. The World Story, Volume 2. India, Persia, Mesopotamia, and Palestine. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 32. The Decline of the Mughal Empire, 18th Century. By Thomas Babington Macaulay. The empire, which Baber and his Mughals reared in the 16th century, was long one of the most extensive and splendid in the world. In no European kingdom was so large a population subject to a single prince, or so large a revenue poured into the treasury. The beauty and magnificence of the buildings erected by the sovereigns of Hindostan amazed even travelers who had seen St. Peter's. The innumerable retinues and gorgeous decorations which surrounded the throne of Delhi dazzled even eyes which were accustomed to the pomp of Versailles. Some of the great viceroys who held their posts by virtue of commissions from the Mughal ruled as many subjects as the King of France or the Emperor of Germany. Even the deputies of these deputies might well rank as to the extent of territory and amount of revenue with the Grand Duke of Tuscany or the Elector of Saxony. There can be little doubt that this great empire, powerful and prosperous as it appears on a superficial view, was yet, even in its best days, far worse governed than the worst governed parts of Europe now are. The administration was tainted with all the vices of Oriental despotism and with all the vices inseparable from the domination of race over race. The conflicting pretensions of the princes of the royal house produced a long series of crimes and public disasters. Ambitious lieutenants of the sovereign sometimes aspired to independence. Fierce tribes of Hindus, impatient of a foreign yoke, frequently withheld tribute, repelled the armies of the government from the mountain fastnesses, and poured down in arms on the cultivated plains. In spite of occasional convulsions which shook the whole frame of society, this great monarchy, on the whole, retained, during some generations, an outward appearance of unity, majesty, and energy. But throughout the long reign of Aurangzeb, the state, notwithstanding all that the vigor and policy of the prince could effect, was hastening to dissolution. After his death, which took place in the year 1707, the ruin was fearfully rapid. Violent shocks from without cooperated with an incurable decay which was fast proceeding within, and in a few years the empire had undergone utter decomposition. A succession of nominal sovereigns, sunk in indolence and debauchery, sauntered away life in secluded palaces, chewing bong, fondling concubines, and listening to buffoons. A succession of ferocious invaders descended through the western passes to prey on the defenseless wealth of Hindustan. A Persian conqueror crossed the Indus, marched through the gates of Delhi, and bore away in triumph those treasures of which the magnificence had astounded Roe and Bernier. The Peacock Throne 
on which the richest jewels of Jolconda had been disposed by the most skillful hands of Europe, and the inestimable mountain of light, which, after many strange vicissitudes, lately shone in the bracelet of Ranjit Singh, and is now destined to adorn the hideous idol of Orissa. The Afghans soon followed to complete the work of devastation which the Persian had begun. The warlike tribes of Rajputana threw off the Mussulman yoke. A band of mercenary soldiers occupied Rohilkund. The Sikhs ruled on the Indus. The Jouts spread dismay among the Jumna. The highlands which border on the western seacoast of India poured forth a yet more formidable race, a race which was long the terror of every native power, and which, after many desperate and doubtful struggles, yielded only to the fortune and genius of England. It was under the reign of Aurangzeb that this wild clan of plunderers first descended from their mountains, and soon after his death every corner of his wide empire learned to tremble at the mighty name of the Maharatas. Many fertile vice-royalties were entirely subdued by them. Their dominions stretched across the peninsula from sea to sea. Maharatta captains reigned at Pune, at Gwalior, in Guzerat, in Berar, and in Tanjuri. Nor did they, though they had become great sovereigns, therefore cease to be freebooters. They still retained the predatory habits of their forefathers. Every region which was not subject to their rule was wasted by their incursions. Wherever their kettle drums were heard, the peasant threw his bag of rice on his shoulder, hid his small savings in his girdle, and fled with his wife and children to the mountains or the jungles, to the milder neighborhood of the hyena and the tiger. Many provinces redeemed their harvests by the payment of an annual ransom. Even the wretched phantom, who still bore the imperial title, stooped to pay this ignominious blackmail. The campfires of one rapacious leader were seen from the walls of the Palace of Delhi. Another, at the head of his innumerable cavalry, descended year after year on the rice fields of Bengal. Even the European factors trembled for their magazines. Less than a hundred years ago, it was thought necessary to fortify Calcutta against the horsemen of Berar, and the name of the Maratha Ditch still preserves the memory of the danger. Wherever the viceroys of the Mughal retained authority, they became sovereigns. They might still acknowledge in words the superiority of the House of Tamerlane, as a Count of Flanders or a Duke of Burgundy might have acknowledged the superiority of the most helpless driveler among the late Carlovingians. They might occasionally send to their titular sovereign a complimentary present, or solicit from him a title of honor. In truth, however, they were no longer lieutenants removable at pleasure, but independent hereditary princes. In this way originated those great Mussulman houses which formerly ruled Bengal and the Carnatic, and those which still, though in a state of vassalage, exercised some of the powers of royalty at Lucknow and Hyderabad. In what was this confusion to end? Was the strife to continue during centuries? Was it to terminate in the rise of another great monarchy? Was the Mussulman or the Maharatta to be the lord of India? Was another Baber to descend from the mountains and to lead the hardy tribes of Kabul 
and Corazon against a wealthier and less warlike race? None of these events seemed improbable, but scarcely any man, however sagacious, would have thought it possible that a trading company, separated from India by 15,000 miles of sea, and possessing in India only a few acres for purposes of commerce, would, in less than a hundred years, spread its empire from Cape Comorin to the eternal snow of the Himalayas, would compel Maharada and Mohammedan to forget their mutual feuds in common subjection, would tame down even those wild races which had resisted the most powerful of the Mughals, and, having united under its laws a hundred millions of subjects, would carry its victorious army far to the east of the Buramputer and far to the west of the Hydaspes, dictate terms of peace at the gates of Ava, and seat its vassal on the throne of Kandahar. End of section 32 This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kevin Stewart